We're continuing today in the book of Romans chapter eight. And I'll start with a question. What child do you know that does not want to do what is right? What person started out in life with a mind to cause nothing but trouble and pain and confusion? Who started out like that? Show me a small child who intentionally aims at displeasing their parents. Children start out innocent at heart. And the main goal of every child, the main desire of every child in life is to stay on the good side of the ones entrusted with their care, their mom and their dad. But very early on in life, something happens. Very early on in life, every child fails to live up to the seemingly simple ideal of just doing what is right. Can you remember the first time that you consciously and intentionally disobeyed your parents? Can you remember the first time that you consciously and intentionally disobeyed your parents? Maybe I'm the only one. I can remember. I remember the first time I made a conscious decision to sin. I was in kindergarten. My mother walked me to the school just a block or so from our house and she watched me as I walked into the school doors. But I hated school. I didn't like my teacher, she was too tall. I didn't like the other people in the classroom, they were too loud, I hated kindergarten. And so I stood there in the door and as soon as my mother was out of sight, I walked right back out of the school doors. And I knew that I was doing something wrong. I knew that I was going to get into trouble, but something inside me was willing to take the risk. Something within me compelled me to reject my mother's instructions, to defy her expectations and to go my own way. And I recall the feeling that I had. First, it was a feeling of immense fear. What am I doing? Then there was courage. I can do what I want to do. Then I felt guilty. Then I just felt confused. The thing I was doing, I did not want to do. And this thing I did not want to do, I could not resist it. I did not have the power to make my own choices or to follow my own better judgment. I did not understand how or why. All I knew for certain was and is that there is something within me, something about me that does not wish me well. That much was clear even as a child. There was and there is a conflict within me. It is a conflict of two natures. The 
one nature desires what is good. The one nature desires what will lead to my peace. But the other nature desires what is evil. The other nature within me is violent, manipulative, and controlling. And my tiny, tiny ethical compass, while always pointing in the right direction, could not move me in the right direction. I was bound to sin. This is the truth that Paul the Apostle grappled with in chapter 7 of the book of Romans. And as he takes the deep dive into his own and into humanity's predicament, Paul stumbles upon this principle in chapter 7, verse 21. That when I want to do good, evil is present in me. That there is a principle at work in the parts of my body, and this principle wages war against the law of my mind and makes me its prisoner. I am a prisoner to sin, captivated, entangled, and subjugated to this lower nature. Paul says that he and I and we are wretched and in need of deliverance from, he says, the body of this death. The body contaminated by sin. In short, the flesh. He says that God the Father has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. So now in chapter 8, Paul says, therefore, since God the Father has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world to rescue us, there is now no condemnation at all. That's good news. The law cannot condemn me. Man cannot condemn me. And just as important, I do not have to live my life any longer under a burden of guilt. I cannot even condemn myself. I cannot judge myself. There is therefore now no condemnation at all, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the caveat. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verse 4 that to be in Christ Jesus is to no longer walk or to live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is what it means to be in Christ Jesus, to live according to the Spirit. But wait a minute. Paul spent a good portion of chapter 7 assuring us that we could not walk, that we could not live according to the Spirit. Isn't that what he said in chapter 7? Actually, no. What Paul explained in chapter 7 is that we cannot walk according to the law. To say it a different way, the law has the power to command, but the law lacks the power to control. The law of God has the power and the authority to judge, but the law lacks the power to forgive. 
The law has the power to condemn, but it does not have the power to justify. The law can bring death to us, but not life to us. And God's desire for us, for you and for me, is that we would have eternal life. But Paul says in verse 3 that the law could not bestow eternal life on us. The law could not free us from the body of death that taints us all. And why not? Because the law is weak. Now we know that in and of itself the law of God is not weak. Paul declares in chapter 7 of verse 12 of Romans that the law is holy and righteous and good. The law is not weak in and of itself. But Paul says here in verse 3 that the law is weak through the flesh. The law is weak through the flesh. The law is no match for the flesh. The Ten Commandments is no match for the flesh. The written code of God as laid out in Scripture is no match for the persistently sinful nature we all have inherited. I don't want to travel too far down this rabbit hole, but I think this point is worth a little elaboration here. The law is weak through the flesh. And when Paul says this, Paul is not talking about the principles of God. He is specifically talking about the written code of God. The law that God gave in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, the law that God committed to writing, the written code of God is weakened by the flesh. The written code of God is watered down or it's exaggerated. The written code of God is argued down. It cannot defend itself against the sinful nature of humanity. That's the problem with the written code. And every written code, whether the written code of, of God or the written code of Baal or the written code of America, every written code, every idea, every proposition committed to writing has the same inherent flaw. I told you about the course I took in college where we were studying Renaissance poetry. And my professor was an atheist. And every poem that we would review, he would say, proved that there is no God. No matter what the writing was, this guy could make the case that there is no God from every poem that we studied, whether from John Donne or Philip Sidney or even John Milton. I don't know how he did that. Even John Milton in every poem. And through the parsing of each individual word, this professor could interpret as proof of the non-existence of God. That is the weakness of the written code. Sinful man can manipulate any writing. Sinful man can take any writing and make it say just about anything that suits their agenda or their preferences. Written words are static. They say what they say, but humans are alterable. Written words are fixed, but humans are dynamic. Written words are vulnerable. But the sinful nature is resistant, and the two can never meet. The law was weakened by sinful nature. 
Because when the sinful nature is confronted by the written code of God, by the Ten Commandments, by any law of God, the sinful nature will either dispute the validity of the text, change the meaning of the text, or disqualify the text on some intellectual grounds. He can do that, and the written code cannot defend itself. This is why my professor loved the poetry of dead men. He didn't want to study the living. He loved the poetry of dead men because he can make their writings mean whatever he wants them to mean and no one can dispute his interpretation on any objective ground. The person who wrote it is not present anymore. You can debate with that professor, but in the end, no one really knows what Shakespeare meant by every line that he composed. And so there is a stalemate. I disagree with your interpretation of the text. You disagree with my interpretation of the text. There's a stalemate. And the flesh may not win the argument, but the flesh is not trying to win any arguments. It is enough for the flesh to hold off the authority of the written code of God for as long as it can. It's fine with a stalemate. That's how sinful nature handles the written code of God. That has always been the way that sinful nature has handled the written code of God. By the time Jesus Christ came into the world, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had so manipulated the text of God that they said it meant things that God never intended. But the law could not defend itself. The written code could not defend itself, speak up for itself. The law is weak when compared to the flesh. And by muddying up the text of God to the point where the written codes lack any real meaning, the written codes of God lack any real power over our lives. This is how the flesh weakens the commandments of God. So that the law of God could not save humanity because our sinful nature is much too savvy to be boxed in by some writings written by men so long ago. <laughs> That's another way the sinful nature disqualifies the written code of God, by attacking the cultures and attacking the morals of the men who wrote them. Moses was a chauvinist, David was a womanizer and a murderer, Nehemiah had racist tendencies. Why would I trust their views of the world? They were writing for their time, but we have evolved. People love to say this nowadays. We have evolved. We have progressed since then. And Nehemiah's words no longer hold weight. Why would we submit ourselves and our lives to people who were so much less developed than ourselves? Studying some old book written by old men, that's the way the sinful nature discredits the written code of God, sinful nature weakens the written code of God and therefore the law, the written code cannot help us. The written code could not save us. So Paul says here that what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Ah. And God is not static. What the written code could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And God is not a relic one can hang upon his wall. God is not vulnerable. God is not at all weakened by my sinful nature. 
He sent us prophets and they couldn't do it. He gave us examples in the Old Testament and they couldn't help us. No one could set us free. God gave us his written code, but even it could not rescue us from the bondage of the enclosure that we find ourselves in, born into sin, shaped in iniquity, what the law could not do. Being susceptible to the manipulation of men, God did himself. And he did it, the text says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God the Father sent a man to rescue men. The written code was too easily dismissed. But the Son of God is not so easily rejected because Jesus is the living code of God. Jesus Christ is the same word of God, but he is the living word, the living code of God. Not written on stones, not written on tablets, but born of a woman, Jesus. And Jesus Christ speaks to us not as a man of his times, but Jesus speaks to us with an eternal wisdom that predates all time. He is the ancient of days, the wisdom of God. And wisdom answers in all ages the same. And when sinful, sinful man tries to twist the words of Jesus, we can see the truth by observing his life. When sinful nature seeks to disqualify Jesus through modern literary schemes, we can see the man's life. We can see the life of Jesus and we know that their interpretation is incorrect, that they do not know him. Jesus Christ is not mere words written down on pages. Jesus Christ is the very spirit, the very essence of the life of God Almighty. And he comes to us speaking life. And Paul says in verse 2, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And yet Jesus Christ has not set us free from God's law. The law of sin and death that Paul is referring to <clears throat> is this body of sin. The law of sin and of death is the condemnation that Paul has mentioned to us in verse 1. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the condemning power of the law of God. The condemning power. So that the written code of God will not condemn us. But how did Jesus Christ accomplish this? Verse 3 says, that what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. In other words, Jesus Christ became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ took our place. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Then Paul says that Jesus Christ condemned sin in the flesh. 
told you guys before that Jesus Christ didn't come into the world to condemn man. He came to condemn sin. So there is plenty of condemnation, but not for us. Jesus Christ came into the world to condemn sin in the flesh, to overpower and to overthrow our sinful nature. God couldn't do it from the outside. God couldn't do it through written codes. This was a task that required his personal and his intimate contribution. He had to become man in order to become one with man so that as a man, Jesus Christ could wrestle with and annihilate the sin that resides within man. Salvation then is an inside job. Jesus Christ, by taking on a body, is able to exercise dominion over the body, even over the body of sin, because he's one of us. He is one with us. And by the sinful life of Jesus Christ, he has opened the door for all of humanity to live free from our sinful nature. So that, Paul says in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law, the requirement of the written code might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is what it means to be in Christ Jesus, to walk according to the spirit of God. But is the Spirit of God then, is the Spirit of God who is in us, is the Spirit of God giving us different instructions than what the law gave in the Old Testament? No, no. God's principles, whether in writing or spoken from the mouth of Jesus Christ, God's principles are always and ever the same. The Spirit of God is not saying anything different than the written codes of God gave in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. It's the same law. The Spirit of God is not disagreeing with the law. The Spirit of God is not saying anything different. The Spirit of God is doing something different. He's still giving the same commandments, but now through Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is able to empower us to fulfill the command. We do not walk according to the written codes, but we walk according to the codes that that are written in our hearts. And the Spirit of God who indwells every believer also causes us to overcome when we are tempted. That's the difference between the law and the Spirit of God. The law gives the commandment and the law punishes you when you don't obey. The Spirit of God gives the commandment and he empowers us to obey. To be in Christ Jesus is to set our minds of the Spirit, Paul says in verse 5. Those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Said another way, those who are committed to the things of this world spend all of their time and their energy and their strength in pursuit of the things of this world. Jesus Christ said that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If worldly pleasure and worldly goods are what you live for, they're all you're going to think about. Your mind will be set on those things. But those who are in accord with the Spirit of God, Paul says, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
the person who is in Jesus Christ, sets their affections on things above, far beyond the things of the flesh and of this world. For the mind set on the flesh, Paul says, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Side note right there. I just noticed this about two weeks ago. Did you know that the book of Romans mentions the mind more than any other New Testament book? I never noticed that before. Paul talks about the mind in almost every chapter of the book of Romans. And I think this fact teaches us a lot about this walk of faith. That our walk of faith is a journey that begins with the mind. And this walk of faith, this journey that we are all on is sustained by the mind's constant renewal. The Bible teaches us that in order to be saved, we are to repent. And what does it mean to repent? To repent literally means to change your mind. That's what it means to repent. Change your mind. Sometimes we're talking to unbelievers and we're demanding that they change their ways. But salvation doesn't start with a reform of the ways, but a reform of the mind. Change your mind. Repent. Refocus and reorient your mind. And it is only as the mind is renewed, as we consistently allow the Holy Spirit to change our minds, that we progress in our walk of faith from glory to glory, ever and always growing more distant from the body of this death. To be in Jesus Christ means to have our minds grounded in the things of the Spirit of God. Because, Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. The flesh, the sinful nature, he says, is hostile towards God. I find this very interesting when I consider the fact that most people, most cultures around the world are not hostile toward the law. They don't necessarily obey the law of God, but in general, people have a respect for the law. Do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Most people have a respect for the law, even if they can't follow it. So why then is the flesh so hostile toward God, but not necessarily toward God's written laws? I'll tell you why. Because God is a person. And as a person, God is much more persistent than the written code could ever be. If you don't want to focus on the law of God, just close the book. You don't have to read about the law of God if you don't want to. But you can't close out God. God is a person who refuses to be sidelined, silenced, or marginalized. God is a person who cannot be manipulated and will not be dismissed. But the flesh, Paul says, does not subject itself to the law of God. And why not? Because it's not even able to do so. But God, for some reason, keeps demanding obedience. 
God keeps convicting. God's keep, God keeps chasing us. And man is not crying out for the law to leave him alone. Humankind, mankind is crying out for God to leave them alone. The flesh is complaining. I cannot subject myself to your laws. I cannot do what you are commanding. Why do you keep making this impossible command of me? Why are you asking me to do what you know I cannot do? And the answer is, God does it so that we can see that we need a savior and so that we will run to Jesus. That is the whole purpose of the law. God knows your flesh can't be subject to the law. God knows that your hurts and habits and hangups are binding you. He already knows that. What he wants you to do by telling you the law, by reminding you of the law constantly, what God is trying to convince you of is that you are not able to have eternal life in and of yourself, that your flesh is not capable of doing what your mind desires. Your flesh is not capable of giving you peace or joy or happiness. And you need to run to Jesus Christ and find a savior. Because Paul concludes in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this is the flesh's constant complaint. I am being told to do what I cannot do. I am being harassed. But this flesh and our sinful nature will find no pity in the house of God. Because God is not looking to save your flesh. Hmm. God is looking to crucify your flesh. And the flesh knows it. Every time the flesh hears a command from God, he knows what God is saying. God is saying, I'm going to destroy you. And the flesh is saying, oh, no, you're not. I'm getting away from I'm getting out of it right now. I don't want anything to do with you. Because the flesh is not created by God. The flesh is not of God. And the flesh will find no pity in the house of God. The flesh will be annihilated in the lives of every single believer so that you and I can live the way we were designed to live in accordance with the Spirit of God and not according to the dictates of this sinful and fallen world. This is the wisdom of God. God sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, into the world on a special mission. He says to his son, I've given them the law and they cannot obey. They cannot follow the law. Therefore, they cannot have eternal life. Something is holding them back. And it is their sinful nature. So therefore, I am sending you into the world to address, to confront their sinful nature. Not them, I'm not trying to harm Hans. But I see something in Hans. And that is what Jesus Christ is trying to annihilate. Not the man, but the sin that is in the man. 
And so Jesus Christ becomes a man. Jesus Christ becomes one of us so that he can have the right to address humanity's ills. And from the inside, he goes toward casting out devils, demonstrating to people that whatever it is that is binding you by the power of the blood of Christ, you can be set free no matter what it is. And whom the Son of God sets free is free indeed. Now, now, after you become a Christian, we all know that you may continue in some sin. It happens. But the difference between the sinner and the saint is this. The saint has his mind set on the things of the Spirit, even if he cannot accomplish what God is commanding. The sinner could care less. It all starts in the mind. And as your mind is renewed, you are able then to reform, not to save, but to reform your flesh and to bring it into submission to the things of God by the power of the Spirit. You're not going to kill yourself. You're not going to kill your flesh. It's going to be around as long as you are around. But you can certainly reform it. You can certainly discipline it. The flesh is like a, a child throwing a temper tantrum, always wanting what it wants. You have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to control your flesh, to control your sinful desires, to tamp down the aggression that comes from your flesh and to win the battle. There is therefore now no condemnation at all, but that does not apply to everybody. It only applies to those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who walk according to the Spirit of God. To those who have their minds, their interests, their desires set on the things of God. These are they who are the children of God. Are you a child of God today? Have you submitted your life to Jesus Christ? Have you Believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord. This is the day of salvation. This day may never come again. This opportunity may never come again. You need to know today that God is not angry with you. God is angry because of what has been done to you because of sin. He is not looking to destroy you or to judge you or to condemn you. God wants to save. He wants to rescue you from your own flesh. I know you think it's you. I know you think that what you do is who you are, but you're mistaken. You were designed, you were made to serve God. You were designed, you were made to set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are in this world. I know you can't see it, but it's true. Don't let your habits define you. Don't let your desires define you. But be defined by Jesus Christ. Give your life to him today. And let Jesus show you who you were always meant to be. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Call upon the name of the Lord today. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that Jesus Christ raised physically and bodily from the dead. By his crucifixion and by his suffering, you can be set free. Let's pray.
Our Father and our God, we thank you for deliverance through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for your compassion and for your great love for us. Thank you for the peace that you've given us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power that we have to resist sin, to resist death. Thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom and by whom we have raised from the dead. Renew our minds, renew our hearts. Renew the fervor and the fire and desire to serve you with all that we have and all that we are. Shift our focus away from the things of this world, the cares of this world, the pleasures of this world. You promised in your word you would keep them in perfect peace whose minds are stayed on you because we trust only in you. Refocus our minds, recalibrate our attention. Call us by your spirit and give us the power to answer. Thank you for condemning sin in our flesh. And every day, Lord God, help us to wage war against this flesh, to bring it into submission to the things that are yours. Thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for all the great things you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.